Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to the Know It All podcast. I am your host, Riley Sue, and I am so excited to be joining you for another episode of the pod. Last week, I had Bebo and Tamaje on, and we covered the stories of some cryptids, mostly from here in the United States. We did have a one-off from Antarctica, but anyway, last week's episode was so much fun, and it was a great little break from our regular one-on-one time. It was so nice to bring other people in and maybe have some of the thoughts or questions that you share come up or, you know, just have a little laugh or two. Don't forget to check out the episode of Tamaje's podcast, Rewatch, that I was a guest on covering Love is Blind Season 4 on Netflix. Of course, that episode came out and was recorded before the weddings and before all of the, uh, you know, fiasco with that live, air quotes around that, live reunion this weekend. But all my predictions did come true, so you should and can still check that out. We're back to standard procedures again this week, though, and we're going to be covering a topic that we touched on before, but you were all interested in hearing a bit more about. So if you voted in the Instagram poll around a month or so ago, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The Granite Mountain Speculator Mine Disaster. This event, like I said, was originally introduced in the episode over Jeanette Rankin, where it spurred her activism against large corporations and added to the loss of her seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. If you want to hear more about that story, head on over to episode five after you finish this one. But the Granite Mountain Speculator Mine Disaster was and is the most deadly underground hard rock mining event that's happened in U.S. history. But as you already know we do, we will be examining not just the events of June 8th, 1917, but also discussing what mining, labor, Montana, and Butte were like when this tragedy took place. So let's go ahead and do it to them. Now, I'm going to guess that you probably know what mining is, but guessing isn't how we do things over here, so I'm going to make sure that you know what mining is. Basically, mining is just going under the Earth's surface and looking for useful materials that are not as abundant above as they are below. Mining is an industry that both harms and advances us as a human race. Metals or precious stones harvested from the Earth are of course pretty, but also provide the internal pieces for all of our electronics and much of our world in general. But the environmental issues that it can cause for the public and the health issues that it can cause for the workers are impossible to ignore. Mining, of course, dates back to prehistory, with the first substance being mined possibly being flint for tools or for weapons. The mining of silver and gold also date back to prehistoric times because, you know, pretty shiny things in a rock. Our reptile brain wants that pretty shiny thing. Mining differs from prospecting in that while you're prospecting, you're looking for a place to mine or you're looking for a concentration of ore. Ore is a word that I'm going to use a lot, and it basically just means a pure, unrefined version of a metal. It's what everyone who is mining is after. So prospecting is looking for a prospective place to mine, and mining is actually getting in there and taking the shit out. There are two categories of mining, surface and underground mining. In surface mining, the ground is blasted so that the ore near the surface can be removed and then refined. Think large open pits with the spiral to the bottom and backhoes. Underground mining is, oh, you guessed it, underground. And in this process, miners blast tunnels into rock deep underground to reach the ore deposits. This is the type of mining that we're going to be concerned about today. I'm extremely proud to say that my family immigrated to the United States in the beginning of the 20th century and that my great-great-grandfather was a coal miner. Not to brag or anything, but that just means I'm built different. This story today is going to prove to you that miners in general were just built different. And part of that was because being an immigrant and a miner often went hand in hand. In the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, people began coming to the United States and looking for work at a pace that was entirely unprecedented. More than 15 million immigrants arrived to the United States between 1900 and 1915. But the expansion of the country meant that there were more jobs, there was more land, and there were more opportunities. You just had to be willing to go find them. This is where the difficulty of mining and the role of immigrants collides. 
they were willing to take jobs that natural-born American citizens thought were below them. These people and their willingness to work in the most desolate and dangerous of conditions led to labor reforms and unionization. They were willing to work, of course, but knew the value of their work. And many changes and conversations that they started are to thank for workers' rights that still prevail into 2023. These immigrants were people that were less likely to speak English or to be literate. Personally, my great-great-grandfather couldn't read and lived as an alien here in the U.S. for almost 40 years before taking his test for citizenship due to his illiteracy, working and completing his draft cards for the United States all the while. These men and these people brought with them the idea of the American dream and enough gusto to execute it. They're the proof that you're only as good as the man standing next to you, and they're the central figures in the legends of our discussion today, and I want to give them their credit where credit is due. Immigrants in the early 20th century modernized and built this country into what we enjoy today. And it all starts in, yep, you guessed it, Montana. Yes, Montana. We seem to spend an awful lot of time here on our show, and I think that's because it's kind of like the perfect little petri dish or aquarium of action. You've got industrialization, modernization, workers' rights, suffrage, child welfare, you name it, it's happening in Montana during this period. And while Miss Montana is ripe with social change, she's also rich with precious stones, minerals, and metals. Montana is the United States' largest producer of palladium and platinum. And there are still mines operating in the state that look for coal, gold, silver, tungsten, garnets, talc, zinc, sapphires, iron, lime, copper, rhodium, nickel, and cobalt. This is a trade and a tradition that's as old as people living in Montana. And you can't really talk about the creation and success of Montana without discussing mining. When gold was found in Montana, it was at first a slow trickle of people headed out to the Big Sky State to try and make it big, but eventually that trickle became a waterfall. Specifically, in the Summit Valley of Montana, early frontiers people thought that Silverbow Creek seemed to have silver flowing beneath the water, and so they set up their camp and panned. The silver within Silverbow Creek kept flowing, and so a more permanent location was set up for rocker boxes and more men to work the sand. The lore says that up on the North Hill, the miners found a small trench dug into a quartz vein with a chipped and worn antler discarded nearby. It appeared that some unknown person was trying to follow the glittering pieces of quartz down into the rock below. But this vein on this hill went much deeper than anyone could imagine, and chipping away at it with an antler would never reach the treasures that it contained. For this was the richest hill in the world, and these deposits ran more than a mile deep. Those deposits make up an 80-mile granite batholith that forms the Continental Divide. In this batholith, molten granite rises up towards the Earth's surface and begins to cool. While cooling, it cracks, creating giant fissures in the rock. Below the granite, there is a reservoir of molten quartz and extremely hot, pressurized water. That pool of quartz and water creates minerals and metals that are then injected into the cracks of the granite. As the material cools within the granite, it becomes veins of gold, silver, zinc, manganese, and the richest copper deposit that had ever been found in the world. The copper ores that are underneath the North Hill are complex copper sulfide ores, like energite, chalcopyrite, and boronite, or peacock copper. Guys, I cannot describe to you what peacock copper looks like. I know it's silly to toss to Instagram for a rock, but guys, we're talking rocks that were so fucking cool people decided that they were worth dying for. Like, think about it that way. I'm going to take your happy ass over to Instagram and appreciate this rock, because this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Okay? Okay. At KnowItAllPod on Instagram. Moving on. But in order to reach these ores and to get that deep below the earth, there would need to be a whole new method of mining. These men would abandon pans and rocker boxes in favor of heavy drills, dynamite, and industrial machinery. Things that all needed to make it to the middle of the Montana wilderness. Railroads, steel cages, steam hoist engines, smelting equipment, giant smokestacks, 
and a pulley system originally designed for the Eiffel Tower became necessary for the mine in Butte. By 1880, the mine was now called the Speculator Mine and extended about five to 700 feet underground with the workers moving material at a rapid pace. This was an age of change with names like Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, and Nikola Tesla on the forefront of innovation and almost all of their inventions or research requiring access to copper. Three big names in Montana history come from this period and they're most often rightfully called the Copper Kings. These men were F. Augustus Heinz, William Clark, and Marcus Daly. They saw the opportunity for a lucrative business in Butte and realized that there were plenty of people there to work the mines, but they could be the ones overseeing and profiting off of them. These three men became multi-million and billionaires, and that's without the conversion of money to now. They were busy making a buck off the back of a standard laborer way before Elon Musk and Howard Schultz started doing it. Butte became Montana's powerhouse, and it became a place where anyone could come from anywhere for an opportunity to make money to start a new path forward. Men from more than 40 countries came to Butte to work the mines, both alone and with their families. The city grew to a population of around 91,000 people, and no smoking signs within the mines were translated into 16 different languages. By 1906, the Copper Kings were out and the Anaconda Copper Company was in. All across the North Hill in Butte, ownership was changing, and during that upheaval stepped in a small group of insightful investors under the name the North Butte Mining Company. The first thing that MBNC came in and did was buy the old speculator mine, which at first didn't make a lot of sense to those outside of the company. You see, at this point, the speculator was known for loose ground, bad air, hot and dangerous conditions, and the shaft could barely be kept in repair to get the ore out of the mine. NBMC strategically acquired claims up the west side of the hill to the top and down the other side. Still, no one knew why the North Butte Mining Company was buying up all this land in this pattern, but it was actually an extremely calculated plan. They had paid the best geologists and the engineers in the business, and they had poured all kinds of money into research and surveys, which came back and told them that by using a central highway shaft within the mine, they could connect eight of the area's veins of ore, creating one massive mine out of 20 smaller ones. Now, I know that they hired their best 20th century engineers, and I know that they cost a lot of money, but just in case you forgot, we're here to discuss a mine disaster. So, spoiler alert, these guys shouldn't have done this. The small mines weren't made to be big mines, and the labyrinth that they're making in the name of profit is entirely outlandish, but we're going to hear about that soon enough. The NBMC added another shaft near the entrance to the spec that was called the Granite Mountain Shaft. This entrance at Granite Mountain and Granite Mountain itself had no ore, but because it was so solid, it was used to create the largest mining shaft and hoisting apparatus for ore that had ever been built. By the year 1917, the speculator and granite mountain shafts went down in about 200-foot increments until they hit 3,700 feet below the surface. The ore veins run vertical through the earth, and the shafts that run perpendicular through them use a cross-cut method so that the shaft would cut through the vein and then the workers could flank out left and right or up and down from there to mine the material that they were after. These deep shafts required ventilation systems to get good surface air to the workers below. In what felt like a blink of an eye, the spec had gone from the hottest and most cramped mine to the deepest and most productive mine in the world. In 1917, the U.S. entered World War I, which caused an increase in production to provide the world the copper it needed for telephones, light bulbs, and every single bullet casing that was used during the war. James D. Moore was a shift boss at the 2200-foot level between the spec and granite shafts in the Edith May vein. Let me just go ahead and blow your mind real quick to remind you that 2200 feet is about seven football fields. But, shift bosses were people on the job that knew how granite, rock, dynamite, and men worked. Their job was directing and managing the men on their level during their shift. 
Underground, loyalty and camaraderie was the backbone of all relationships in the mine. The men were bonded together doing this intensive work that only they knew the truth of. Moore had around 40 men that worked for him. These men did various jobs on the different floors of the 2200 level. Drilling, blasting with dynamite, mucking the remnants out, or dropping the mined ore down the chutes where it was then picked up by ore carts on small mine trains that would then take it back up the shaft for it to be carried up and out to the surface. The operation was unlike any other in the world, let alone Montana. But the mine was full of loose rock and holes, and the workers had to be careful of every step that they took. Also, staying on the lookout for falling rock, drills malfunctioning, or dynamite blasting you. And they did all of it basically in the dark. There were no electric flashlights or headlamps yet. These workers were thousands of feet underground with just a few feet of light that surrounded them that came from the open flame of either a candle or a carbide lantern. So that takes us up to Friday, June 8th, 1917. That day, Norman Braley was working as the supervisor. Braley had actually gotten a few patents for ventilation systems for mines, breakthrough industry-changing stuff, but on this day, he had his men lowering a 1,200-foot armored electric cable to hook up to the fire prevention system inside of the mine. The cable was two and one-quarter inches in diameter, so about six inches around, and it was a copper wire that was destined to carry 5,000 volts that was covered in insulation made of an oil or varnish-soaked fabric. Highly flammable, but it was the best thing that they could come up with to dissipate heat from the electric current and on top of the fabric was a thin lead sheath about 3 sixteenths of an inch thick. On Friday morning, they started lowering the 1,200-foot, three-ton cable down the chippy shaft of the mine. The chippy shaft is the smaller cage that the workers would ride to enter or exit the mine. So for about 12 hours that day, the electricians guided the tip of the cable down to the 2,600-foot level, meaning its end was at around the 1,400-foot level. At this point, the plan was to begin pulling the cable into a cross-cut shaft of the mine and attach it to the transformer. The transformer had actually just been moved, and it was an attempt to prevent fires, because in a nearby mine two claims away, the Modoc, the entire shaft had burned when a transformer at the bottom malfunctioned. These transformers ran thousands of volts through them, and in the conditions of the mines, they had a reputation for just exploding into flames. So it was better to move it away from the main exit route of the mine's system in case it, that did happen. I should also mention that the main shafts of these mines and just a majority of their parts in general were made from wood, too. So if that went up, it was all over. The area that the transformer was moved to was away from any of those shaft timbers, and it had been drilled far enough into the rock so that even if it did go up in flames, it would hopefully prevent the entire shaft from going up in flames. So that day, the entire fire prevention system, all the signals, all the sprinklers, the electric locomotives, all the ventilation, and most everything connected to the granite mountain shaft was going to be hooked up into this transformer in its new location. Somewhere along its journey down the shaft, the giant cable got twisted. So the head electrician, Hale, said, hey, those gotta go. The twists have to come out. So he goes back up the chippy cage and he begins unwrapping the hemp ropes that were used to attach the 1200 foot cable to the lift. He started doing this and he got 100 feet up or so when the cable began to slide down. He looked at it sliding. It couldn't have been more than a foot in front of his face. And he knew in that instant that this was a major problem. Hale rang the hoist engineer to lower the hoist and he continued to ring the bell for the hoist to go faster and faster. But as fast as the hoist could lower, he stayed in speed with the cable. It descends into the shaft just as quickly as he does. He's approaching the 2600 station and watching the cable as it hits off the walls of the shaft, hitting the brackets, catching on the sprinklers. And as he gets closer to the level, he leaps away from the edge of the shaft. The other men at the station follow suit. And just as they do, the entirety of the 1200-foot, three-ton cable comes crashing down stripping the walls of the shaft, breaking water lines, smashing the fire prevention system, 
ripping out the ventilation and destroying everything in its path. As the dust settles, the pebbles fall, and the water trickles, the men stick their head out of the end of the crosscut and look up into an empty shaft 2,600 feet below the ground. The men look around at what's just happened. They check the electricity, and then they exit the mine via the chippy and inform their supervisor of what's just taken place. When they reach the surface, they go to tell the night foreman, Ernest Solow, an immigrant from Germany. Ernest had worked in the spec for 15 years and had reached the position of night foreman from the bottom of the pecking order. His hands had literally helped create the entirety of the mine. He knew it like his own reflection, and he wasn't the type to back away from any issue inside of it. The electrician told him what happened, and he said that he would find a way to fix it. He wrote a note to Norman Braley that said, quote, Norman, cable fell, blocking shaft below 2400. Going down to pull it out, we'll get the water pipes working and the drills back on, end quote. The guys that worked at the mine just fixed the issues that came up and the problems that arose. Never mind that this was something that had never happened before. They just thought they were going to be able to go down and fix it. Salau went down in the shaft with another shift boss, John Collins. Collins had already pulled all of his people out from beneath where the cable had landed, so his men were safe and he was just looking for a way to help get back on schedule. Salau and Collins go down with another couple of guys to the 2400 station to figure out what they're going to do. The group filed out of the chippy cage and slid, backs against the shaft timbers and chests up against the chippy safe plate, they're all pressed into this tiny slot, squeezing through, arms outstretched, and then they step into the open shaft. So they start looking for the cable. They climb down into the pile of it, trying to find where the end is. On one side, they have this giant bunch of tangled and shredded cables that's ripped apart, the lead sheath open and the fabric insulation exposed. And on the other side of the timber is an open shaft, a 600-foot fall below them. So Collins says that they're looking for the end of the cable so they can attach it back to the chippy and take it out of the shaft. They're rifling and poking through the ripped insulation and the shredded fabric, all the while holding their open flame carbide lamps. Flames that burn at around 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. They didn't realize it, yet, but they were surrounded by the world's largest fire hazard, with more than 2,400 feet of kindling directly above them. Salau brushed some of the shredded tufts with his lamp, and suddenly the flames went up. He reached around to put it out, but then the flames started behind him. He slapped out the first ones, but it was already too late, and the whole shaft was up in flames. Collins said, quote, I heard Ernest yell, John, I got my lamp too close, and she took fire, so we couldn't get no good of it. She just went too strong, end quote. So the men frantically jumped back onto the cage and went up to the 2400 station and grabbed the men there. The group dumped a keg of drinking water down the shaft, it was the only water they had, and it did nothing. Within two minutes, the fire had climbed up the shaft and was burning at the 2400 station. John Collins and two other men continued up the shaft. They reached the surface and shouted to the top man, Fire at the 2400! The two other men who had come up with John, Pete Sheridan and Pat Conroy, began removing the ore skips from the main lift and attaching the stack cages so they could go right back down to get their fellow men. Men they worked back-breaking labor with and let on and off of the lift every single day. It takes around two minutes for Pete and Pat to change the cages, and at this point on the surface, there's still no sign of a fire, no smoke, nothing, which makes the guys on top wrongfully hopeful. Collins and the other top men for the mine argue with Pete and Pat, saying that the signal bells are supposed to get the men out, but Pete and Pat won't have it. The bells aren't working fast enough. They want to go in and get their friends themselves, so Pete and Pat get lowered. But then there are no signal bells. Nothing happens. Confusion breaks out on the surface, 
The hoist operator says that there must be something wrong, so he starts to pull them up. But as they come up out of the shaft, a pillar of flames follows them. Pete Sheridan and Pat Conroy are incinerated in front of everyone on the surface while embracing each other on the lift. Everything below them is in flames. Because the fire is within the mine, and in a mine that has so many interconnected shafts, the smoke, the flames, and the debris are just filling all of those crevices and all of those shafts instead of dissipating through the air. Mind you, these shafts are filled with hundreds of men. 410, I believe, is the exact number that went in that day. Down at the 2400 station, Salau is standing there as the shaft is being burned, and he's thinking of all the places within the mine that there were men working all the different locations and jobs that they were filling, and he knew that they had no idea what was happening or that he had been the one to start a fire. He also knew that word would only travel as fast as a man could run in the dark. They wouldn't know unless he got to them. So Salau began to divide the men at the station, breaking them into groups and assigning them to go to certain places and to direct people to stop coming toward the Granite Mountain shaft. Salau himself went straight out of the 2400 station and into the Edith May because he knew that there were at least 60 men working there. So Salau's running through the tunnel of the Edith May. And to just kind of paint a picture for you guys, and of of course I'll have reference photos up on Instagram, but I just want to take a quick moment to explain this to you guys, kind of what he's running through or what he's inside of right now. So he's within the Edith May vein. And like I said earlier, those veins are fissures within the rock that have been filled with ore. So what happens is the tunnel is created and then either left or right, you know, in a horizontal fashion or in a vertical fashion up through the ceiling are little tunnels or ladders put in so that people can access stuff above. And as Ernest is running through, as Ernest Salau is running through, he is notifying the men above him within the crack, within the fissure. Okay? Okay. So back to what our boy Ernest is up to. Ernest is running through the tunnel of the Edith May, and every time he comes upon a canvas ventilation pipe that goes up into the fissure, he shuts it off. He bangs his hammer on the wall to get the attention of the miners overhead, and he shouts for them to go to the high ore shaft, or to go to the south. This was because he knew that going out via the high ore mine, an extra 1,500 feet out of the way, was the only route that wouldn't run the men directly into the flames. It was the only way out. And even with Salau's instructions, many of the men didn't know which way to go, so he led them. He led two groups out of the mine and then immediately head back in where he met up with a third. He drew them a map of how to get out and then took off for another vein, where he knew almost a hundred men were still working. The mine, with all its cross-cutting, interconnecting tunnels, was a labyrinth, and most men only knew one route, the route from the Granite Mountain shaft to their worksite and back. It was typically the only place they needed to go. But right now, going that way, traveling to that shaft, would be a death sentence. Instead, the men would need to go the opposite direction that their instincts told them, turn away from the direction that they always traveled and go out via the speck shaft or another shaft further south. Most of the men didn't even know how to get out that way. The smoke moved through the complex horizontal and vertical shafts, sometimes rising up from below or falling from above, and it was hard to determine where the smoke was originating from. Smoke approaches them from the front, they turn back, and it's suddenly coming from behind. They do everything that they can to find a place the smoke is not, and they do all that they're capable of to get away. Now, you might be saying, what? Smoke moving down? But yeah, smoke moving down. The issue is this. The granite mountain shaft was a downdraft shaft, meaning that air flowed down it and then out of the speculator shaft. 
The summit of Granite Mountain was at an elevation of around 6,300 feet, and it was the middle of the night on June 8th, so the air was relatively cold. The air would typically come down the shaft in a normal flow and then cross the horizontal tunnels into the speculator and flow back out to the surface. Well, when the fire started and the smoke began to rise from the flames, that downdraft was still forcing air, and it was actually forcing all of the smoke to flow into the different tunnels and the different levels that were connected to the Granite Mountain shaft. Well, when the fire started and the smoke began to rise from the flames, that downdraft was still forcing air, and it was actually forcing all of the smoke into the different tunnels and levels that were connected onto the Granite Mountain shaft. The fire within the shaft intensified like a blast furnace, and pulses of black smoke were just beating up out of the shaft into the air on the surface. The timbers that lined the mine shaft were wet from the groundwater that was pouring in, which led to incomplete combustion within the fire and a higher concentration of carbon monoxide in the smoke. If you're not aware, when someone gets carbon monoxide poisoning, what basically is happening is the carbon monoxide is accumulating in the blood and then it bonds with the hemoglobin, taking the place of the oxygen molecule, effectively suffocating you from inside of your blood out. There's actually a story from two men that survived named Winder and Vuko. Vuko and Winder had come out of their work area and started charging toward the 2200 foot station. This station was connected to the granite mountain shaft, and they ran that way with others that were working near them, headed straight into the fire. As they neared the station, the black wall of smoke rolled down the tunnel, and man after man ran into the smoke in an attempt to get to safety. Winder and Vuko entered the flames, but the farther they went, the blacker it got. Their lamps went out. The men dropped to their forearms and knees and began crawling on the ground, pressing their noses into the floor, sipping the last bit of air out from underneath of the smoke. Winder realized that something was desperately wrong. He couldn't breathe, that he was crawling towards his death. He turned and faced Vuko. Vuko was crying. I'm dying. I'm dying. Winder grabbed Vuko and punched him in the face, grabbed him by the collar and dragged him up, and they started off in the opposite direction. The pair turned back to get out of the smoke, but the men from behind them were desperate to get out too and shoved them out of the way, throwing them to the ground and crawling over top of their bodies. The men crawling over them thought they were headed for safety, but they were headed right into the belly of the fire. Winder and Vuko retreated out of the smoke and away from the others, laying exhausted until they got up and ran for their lives with dozens of other men who were headed south through the tunnels to exit via the high ore. So there were dozens of men that were trying to find a way out from the horizontal sections of the mine. They tried to go every direction, but ended up finding themselves stuck. There were around 29 men total. Most of them didn't know each other. They just frantically ended up in the same place trying to escape. One of them was named Manus Dugan. He had worked in the mine for almost 10 years, so he understood well the layout of the mine and the issue that faced them. The men argued about what to do. Some suggested using their dynamite to blast their way out. Others suggested that they should wet their clothes to cover their heads and just run through the smoke. He let them go back and forth for a while before he said, quote, Listen to me, boys. You can suit yourself, but my advice is to bulk head in. That's what I'm going to do, and I suggest you do the same, end quote. What Dugan meant was to seal themselves into their own tomb, build a wall that's airtight, and hope that the air inside of the chamber lasted long enough for the danger and the gas outside to clear. If it seems like walking straight to death's doorstep, then you're right, it is. But it's the only option they had. It was either die trying or die. Might as well try. Dugan convinced the 28 other hysteric and frantic men to seal themselves in. They gathered timbers and boards and canvas piping and tools, and they built their wall. They built it in the 2471C tunnel, which was a dead-end tunnel that was about 1,500 feet from the opening of the granite mountain shaft. As the men finished their bulkhead and sealed into safety, 
they also sealed themselves far away from anyone who could help. On the opposite side of the granite mountain shaft, J.D. Moore was still trying to get men out of the mine. He and around nine others had tried to make it to the speculator and to the high ore, but weakness and exhaustion from the gas was becoming too much. Moore knew that he would not make it out with these men. So he led them into a crosscut at the 254, where almost the worst of the gas was flowing. The men retreated and they were entirely terrified. Some of the men began to push back against Moore, starting to wet their shirts and saying they were just going to make a run for it. But Moore knew if they ran, they were already dead. So he took two guys, slammed them up against the wall of the tunnel and said, quote, if you want to die, you go that way. If you want to live, come with me, end quote. And then he ran them as far away from the burning shaft as he could running from everything that would usually lead him and his men to safety, running them further into the mine. Finally, they reached a dead end and began to make their bulkhead. Moore ripped a canvas hose from a vent and directed one of the men to use the flowing air to keep the gas back, like invisible water fighting a black fire. The men then framed a wall from timbers and used spare canvas pipe to begin covering it. They ran out of canvas and began stripping off their clothes, nailing them to the wall, mixed water from their canteens with dirt and plastered mud over the material. As they worked, they left a small man-sized hole for the guy on the other side fighting the gas back. Almost done, yelled the man with the hose. Not yet. Aim for the floor. The gas is sneaking under. I can taste it, Moore said back over the roar of the flowing air, drills, hammers, and voices of frantic men. Moore screamed, now, and then the man passed the hose back through the hole and jumped inside of the small room that his mates had created. As soon as the air stopped flowing against the smoke, it crashed down like a wave. Inside, another man picked up the hose and aimed it at the hole, keeping the black fumes back. Moore set the last board, nailed it into place. Another man shut his pants and handed them to Moore. He nailed those over the board. The wall was closed. The only sound in the room was the hiss of the air hose. Moore turned the valve shut, and stillness filled the group. A single carbide lantern cast light onto the men, covered in dirt, naked, sweating, breathing heavily. The men looked at each other uncertainly tools still in hand, tense and waiting for the enemy on the other side of the wall to make another attack, but suddenly aware of just how small the space was for all ten of them. Moore sat down against the bulkhead, his bare-ass cheeks on the stone below, and he looked around the room, telling each one of the men, good work, boys. Good work. Even though all of that was taking place beneath, on the surface, all hell was breaking loose. Smoke was rising out of the shafts, and men were trying to create rescue teams. Norman Braley began to shoot water down the shaft to the fire below, but when it makes contact with the superheated rock, the granite just explodes, causing everything from the 1,000-foot level to below the 2,400-foot level to be showered in rock. The rescue team of fellow miners enters the shaft with primitive rebreather masks, trying to rescue anyone who may still be inside. They weren't willing to let them die without trying to save them first. It could have just as easily been them inside, and isn't this what they have wanted done for them? So they ran into the toxic gas, and they searched level by level sometimes by the feel of the rails beneath them because the smoke was so thick and so dark. But no one knew about the bulkheads. No one knew that somewhere deep within the mine, through thousands of feet of tunnels and under thousands of feet of cubic gas, there were men alive and waiting in the dark, supporting each other from the fear and slowly breathing in some of the little oxygen that they had left. In Manus Dugan's bulkhead, they kept watch. They would bang on the rails on the ground and pull at the canvas air pipe, they had a small hole that they plugged with a shirt that they would occasionally open to see if the smoke was still outside. After 24 hours, the air behind the bulkhead had decreased significantly in quality. The flames of the carbide lamps went out due to lack of oxygen, and men were writhing on the floor due to the same. Dugan wrote, quote, Sunday, 1 a.m., 
I realize that our oxygen has been consumed, everyone breathing heavily. If death comes, it will be caused by all oxygen used in the chamber, end quote. Another man said, quote, no water to drink, nothing to eat, foul air. Carbide lamps, candles, and even my matches won't work, and they're good matches, end quote. Some men were desperate. They wanted to tear down the bulkhead and allow the smoke to choke them out. Maybe that could be a quicker suffering than this. But from banging on the rail, some of the men thought that they had made out that someone was coming, and they banged on what must have felt like a million more times. Still, no one came. Moore was still on the other side of the shaft, behind his bulkhead in a group of ten men, and he did his best to keep their spirits up. He broke the glass on the face of his watch so he could feel the hands and tell what time it was. He was breathing heavy due to the amount of carbon monoxide in his blood, and yet he still joked with his men trying to keep them optimistic. Moore also wrote to his wife, quote, Dear pet, this may be the last message you get from me. The gas broke at around 11.15, and I tried to get the men out, but the smoke was too strong. I got some of the boys with me in a drift, and we put in a bulkhead, end quote. The tone of the letters quickly shifted, though, and just after five hours, he said, quote, Dear pet, we're all waiting for the end. I guess it won't be long. We take turns rapping on the pipe, so if the rescue crew is around, they'll hear us. Try not to worry. I know you will. But trust in God. Everything will come out all right. We will meet again. With love to my pet, and may God take care of you. Your loving Jim. End quote. Slowly behind the bulkhead, the men were dying. Blackness began to fill the chamber, creeping like molasses and blacking out their vision until the men could no longer see each other. Fear and desperation was welling up in the group, but Moore rose up from the haze of his gas poisoning, willing against the dark killer. He talked with the men, encouraging them and continuing to bang on the pipe. He single-handedly kept hope alive in that small chamber, crawling in the dark from man to man and giving each of them water or just wetting their lips if they were too weak to swallow. As the hours moved from Saturday to Sunday and from Sunday to Monday, the men in the group spoke in low, broken phrases. Tormented by the combination of darkness, toxic air, mud, and pain that surrounded them, Moore had begun to drift away. One man laid next to him, and another said into the blackness, I want to die. Moore roused himself and said, quote, You can't give up, Stanley. Think of your wife, your children. You can live. End quote. At this point, the air in the bulkhead had been breathed and rebreathed a million times. Their eyes ached for light, and their hearts began to fail due to lack of oxygen. After a day and a half, Dugan's men checked the air through the small peephole and realized that the smoke was clearing. Dugan looked back at his men and whispered to those around him, quote, Are you ready to take the gambler's chance? Now's the time, end quote. And with that, they tore down the bulkhead. The new air from the tunnel rushed in, and the fresher breeze woke some of the men up from their stupor. The air smelled of the surface, of grass, and of other living materials the men thought that they would never see again. The men felt hope that they hadn't in hours. Dugan was the first to break out of the bulkhead and went out ahead. He was headed for the signal bell at the station so he could let those on the surface know that there were still people alive and in need of rescue. The signal bell was nowhere to be found. It must have been damaged in the commotion. And without that bell, no one knew they were there, let alone that they were alive. They needed a new exit plan after waiting 39 hours for this moment. Dugan turned back and went another way that he knew out, leaving his men in the station near the spec shaft. He was headed this time for a manway via the rainbow vein that he could then climb up on a ladder to get out to a rescuer for his men. Dugan disappeared and didn't return. The men at the station were desperate. Two of the men held one of the other's hand, and he leaned out into the shaft. 
600 feet of open air beneath him. The man felt along the wall in complete darkness. He felt the metal housing for the signal cord. He felt the guides for the cord, but he didn't feel the cord. Finally, in a last-ditch effort, he swipes his hand through the center of the shaft, out into the open of the darkness. His hand brushes something. It's the signal cord. The man strains and barely gets it within his fingertips' reach. His mates pull him back in, and he brings the cord with him. Frantically, they ring the bell. First, nine times for danger, and then six and four times for 2,400 feet. On the surface, the hoist operator has been sending rescuers down to, at the lowest point, the 2200. So when he hears danger, he of course perks up, but then he hears 2400, and he hesitates. There's no one on the 2400. It had to have been a mistake. But then, the signal comes again, and the men down at the station are carefully counting the rings out loud. At this point, they were so traumatized and exhausted from the fumes and the lack of food, it was taking all of them to come up with the correct pace, count, and interpretation for the signals. But it was clear. Nine, six, and four. Danger. And men alive on the 2400. The rescuers went down and they found a group of naked men lying near the edge of the shaft station, blinking at the first light they'd seen in 39 hours. The excitement and joy of finding these men alive relit the motivation for the rescuers, but it was short-lived, for they realized that Dugan was not among them. He had disappeared in a moment where it seemed all hope was lost at the station, leaving 25 men alone and disappearing into the depths of the mine. One of Manus Dugan's men, Albert Cobb, made it out of the mine, and while first aid was attending to him, said that all he wanted was to see his wife. He ran away from the first aid station and from the celebrating crown. He ran down the mountain and past all the other mines, through the town, past the lumber yard, and into his neighborhood. He approached his house, and his dog was out in the small front yard. But due to the dirt and the stench from the bulkhead, the dog didn't recognize his master and wouldn't let him enter the yard. The dog barked and raised its hair on end at this unknown man. Finally, Albert's wife burst forth from the house and shouted to him. Neighbors joined on their porches to see what was going on, but quickly went back inside because of the smell from the bulkhead. Albert's wife returned with a shirt and pants and threw it over the fence to him. He changed clothes right there in the street and then came through the gate. The dog was overjoyed, suddenly recognizing his master. Albert and his wife embraced, and she said, quote, I knew it would end like this. I never quit, end quote. When his body was found, it was discovered that Dugan was overcome by the gas before he was able to reach the manway and climb 2,000 feet to the surface. On his body, within his pocket, there were letters discovered that had been written to his wife and their unborn child. Writing in the dark, he told his wife that he loved her, and he was sorry for any harm or unpleasantness that he may have caused her. Finally, he told her that their house was hers and wrote that it wouldn't be long. Only a month after his death, his only child was born, a daughter who was also named Manus. J.D. Moore and his men were found after more than 50 hours inside of their chamber. Moore and one other man succumbed to the gas just before the rescue team discovered their haphazard bulkhead. And in J.D. Moore's final letter, he said, quote, If anything happens to me, sorry, <laughs> quote, If anything happens to me, you had better sell the house and go to California and live. You will know your Jim died like a man, and his last thought was for his wife that I loved better than anyone on earth. End quote. Granite Mountain got me crying in the club. I need a minute before I finish the rest of this section, guys. Hold on. In total, 168 men died, but more than 240 lived. The number 168 took some time to reach as the final death count because there was trouble identifying bodies and just in general finding them. 
Piles of soot and ash that reached up to mid-shin on some of the men and bodies that were trapped under that debris and behind fallen rock meant that this was a difficult mission. In the end, the coroner issued death certificates for 95 identified and 74 unidentified bodies. Some have accused the mining companies and their company-owned newspapers of deliberately muddling the information in an attempt to limit benefits paid to miners' families. Others have blamed the confusion or chaos of those involved on June 8th. A more realistic conclusion is that the size of the speculator and Granite Mountain mine is to blame. Unorganized rescue efforts began at 1 a.m. on June 9th, frantic to get anyone out that they could, without documenting who they found or where they were. Organized attempts at rescue came later in the morning, with other miners and companies coming together to try and rescue the trapped workers. More than 300 miles of underground tunnels and shafts had been contaminated by the toxic smoke, not to mention the debris and the collapse in the Granite Mountain shaft from the explosion of the granite. Confusion also arose from the inability to identify many of the dead that were coming up from the mine. Bodies were swollen into grotesque shapes from the heat and the gases speeding up decomposition, and the smell of rotting flesh was severe. Bodies were quickly buried after being removed from the mine. This tragedy took place in a political and social atmosphere charged by the threat of the World War. Three days before the fire began, the state militia had been in Butte to arrest several Irish, Austrian, and Finnish members of the community who were demonstrating against the draft and the United States alliance with Great Britain. After the fire at the speculator in Granite Mountain, the local press and representatives of the North Butte Mining Company hinted that pro-German sympathies were to blame for the fire. A letter on company letterhead stated that carelessness caused the cable to fall, and that Ernest Sulau was born in Germany, and his parents still live there. Units of United States Army would replace the state militia over the next few months, guarding mining properties and enforcing patriotism. They stayed in Butte until 1921. The dangerous and deadly conditions of the mines and the blame on their fellow workers was too much for the miners of Butte, and they enacted their first strike in 39 years following the disaster. Production in Butte never again reached the levels of the mid-1910s, and Anaconda and other companies became more interested in outsourcing for cheaper labor than they were in maintaining the communities that they had quite literally created. In the early 1980s, more than 3,000 people were laid off from the mines in Butte, and by 1983, the Anaconda Copper Mining Company was defunct. Mining is still happening in Montana, and though there isn't as much underground hard rock mining taking place in the state right now as there was in the early 20th century, we could have that boom again in the future. Two elements, neodymium and praseodymium, that were once overlooked on the periodic table have found a new value in the production of electric vehicles. One site in an area that has been previously mined in Montana contains 12 of the 17 rare earth elements in a 7 square mile area. This is of course exciting for the economy of Montana and for places like Butte that have experienced steady declines since the mining companies left. But it's also a moment for us to look at the past and remember that what is available isn't always what's best for us. It made life easier and more simple for the engineers of the spec to connect all eight ore veins, but it sent men so far into the depths of the earth that they lost their lives down there. Between needs for further testing, environmental impact studies, tribal consultations, water quality studies, public comment, and federal review, the EV mining boom is still a ways away in Montana, but it isn't out of the question. But for me, questions like what is the value of ore versus human life, or even do the people working on this project know what happened at the spec? All come to mind. I know I won't be forgetting anytime soon. That, that's everything. I cannot believe I cried. <laughs> I cannot believe I cried because of a quote. I can't believe it. It was really, really sweet. But if I had to describe this story in one sentence, it's Murphy's Law. 
what can go wrong will go wrong. At every single turn of this story, we experience loss. We experience sadness, disappointment, failure of the system, failure of safety planning, and just in general, an all-around tragedy. With events in our lexicon like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory or, or the Radium Girls, it's really common for us in the United States to have a pop culture kind of knowing of these major labor events from our past. The speculator Granite Mountain mine disaster is not one of those events. And I can't really tell you why. I can tell you, though, that this is proof of what humans are capable of in the darkest of moments. It's proof of that even whenever you are dying from the inside, your your body, everything in your body is turning against you. You can still choose to be there for the person that's next to you. You can still choose in a moment of uncertainty to be kind to your fellow human, which I think is just really saying something. And just the fact, I'm going to cry again. Oh my God. (laughs) Just the fact that Manus Dugan did everything that he did, didn't make it out. J.D. Moore did everything that he did, didn't make it out. Ernest Selau did everything that he did and didn't make it out. It's tragic. And to think that this company, these newspapers, history, anyone would tarnish the experiences and the reputation and the reputations of those men and those quite literal heroes is just awful and is something that I don't think is okay. And that's why we talked about this today and why I'm crying. So give me a second. I'm going to wipe my tears off and then we're going to say goodbye. Okay. If I could ever get these tears to stop, I've got three little recommendations for y'all this week. Oh my gosh. Okay. Pull yourself together, man. So one of my biggest recommendations for this week and actually where I read about the stories of J.D. Moore and Manus Dugan and uh, Ernest is A Darkness Lit by Heroes, The Granite Mountain Speculator Mine Disaster of 1917 by Doug Ammons. Wow. One of the best books I think I've ever read. He just, the way that this is written, good. And then also If you read this, if you enjoy this, if you're even slightly interested in this, just go over to YouTube and pop in Granite Mountain and you can find um, a speech, I think it's from six years ago, that Doug did about um, this event while he was still researching the book. So cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Um, I actually have two songs to also recommend this week that were inspired by the events at Granite Mountain. One is called Rocks in the Box, and it's by the Decemberists, which is an indie rock band. Very good. Check that out. Check the Decemberists out in general. Good stuff. And then the other song was called um, oh, The Miners by a Celtic group called The Elders, and that's from 2014. Um, so go ahead and check those two things out. There was also, I was watching an old new, an old news clip from like, the 80s and there was another song that somebody was playing 
and it got stuck in my head and it was so good, but I don't think that it's a real song. So, sorry. Go check out, <laughs> go do the YouTube search and find the song that I'm talking about in the clip from the 80s. You'll know it when you hear it because it's a bop. Anyway, <laughs> I think that that's where I'm going to cut it off, guys. Goodbye. I hope that you will join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please like, share, comment, send the podcast to a friend. It really helps me whenever you guys send the pod to a friend. And the only reason I do this is for you guys. So if you enjoy it, find other people that enjoy it and we can all enjoy it together. But mostly, guys, just please stay safe out there. Until next time. Bye. Bye.